The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's reading is Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. My name is Trevor. I'm the student ministry director here at Coram Deo. I am super glad that you're in the room this morning, and I am thankful for the opportunity to open God's word with you. Uh, Several years ago, I was leading a small group discussion about how the gospel speaks to and heals our pain. When a gal in that small group began to express her doubts about God, she had been quiet for most of the discussion, but by the end, when she finally decided to speak up, she said, you know, I have no problem believing that Jesus died and rose again. And I have no problem believing that his death accomplished everything that the Bible said that it accomplished. I know that Jesus had to die for me, but I have a hard time believing that he wanted to. She said, I'm a Christian. I believe that I've been saved and I believe that I've been forgiven. But there's a part of me that can't help but think that God is somehow deeply disappointed in me. That gal had no problem believing the facts about what God had done for her, but she couldn't understand what God was like. She had great categories for things like justification and salvation and forgiveness, but she had almost no categories for things like God's love, God's grace, and God's compassion. As far as she was concerned, God was reluctant, displeased, and mildly resentful towards her. I have to admit, I didn't know what to say to her in that moment. 
It's not that there aren't good things to say to that, and it's not that nothing came to mind. It's that in that moment, and sometimes in my daily life, I often feel the same way. Pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But sadly, for many of us, what comes into our minds when we think about God is neither pleasant nor accurate. For some of us, God is an absentee landlord who we only hear from when he calls to collect our rent. For others, we see God as a demanding coach who expects much from us, but who cares very little for us. Perhaps for others, God is a distant and somewhat estranged relative who supports us out of obligation rather than delight. And still, maybe for others, God is an exacting judge who legally forgives us of all our sins, but who otherwise remains impartial to the cares and concerns of our everyday life. Stop and think with me for a moment about those caricatures. Which of those mental images come to your mind when you tend to think about God? Do you tend to think of him as an absentee landlord, as a demanding coach, an estranged relative, or perhaps an exacting judge? Thankfully, whatever misconceptions we bring into this room about God this morning, we have Psalm 30 to correct those misconceptions by helping us understand what God is actually like. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at Psalm 30 is that Psalm 30 helps us understand God's heart. And we're going to see that God is nothing like those things. Instead, we're going to see that God is a gracious and approachable Savior. That's not who he pretends to be. That's not who we wish he would be on his best days. That is who he is. This truth is so central to Christianity that Dane Ortland, author of the book Gentle and Lowly, says that if we don't know God in this way, then we don't know God at all. So this morning, if what comes into your mind when you think about God is any of the caricatures that I've just painted for you, my prayer is that Psalm 30 would redeem and recreate all of that giving you a mental image of God that is true to Scripture and good for your soul. Psalm 30 is shaped like a target. The first and the last stanzas create the outer ring, and verses 4 and 5 create the bullseye, sitting right at the center of the psalm as if to say, hey, focus your attention here. What's right here is what's most important. And when we zone in on the bullseye of Psalm 30 and look at verses 4 and 5, what we see is that God is gracious. So we're going to start there at the center, and we're going to work our way out. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. It says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. When we think of God, we tend to do so in either-or categories. We tend to think that God is either merciful or just, sovereign 
or good, gracious or angry. But when David reflects on God's character, he sees something entirely different. He doesn't see God's anger and God's favor in competition with one another, as if they're UFC fighters duking it out in the octagon. He doesn't see that they're on equal footing, as if one could give way to the other at any moment. He's gracious until he just can't take it anymore. His anger breaks out. Now, what David sees is that if we compare God's anger to his favor, God's anger is to his kindness what a grain of sand is to the sea. And by comparing God's anger to God's favor in this way, God, David is showing us that God's overall disposition towards us is not anger and disappointment. It's acceptance and delight. Like a good parent, God may discipline from time to time, but he never disowns. My wife and I have two children. Our son, Valor, is six. Our daughter, Sylvie, is four. And at the time my son was born, I had had very little experience with children. Uh, so little, in fact, that I think the first kid I ever held was my own son. Uh, and so when he was born, I did not know what it was going to take to be a father. I was pretty nervous. So I asked everybody who was a parent for their best parenting advice. And uh, I got some good advice here and there. But the best advice I got came from my mom. Uh, when I asked her what advice she had for me as her son becoming a parent of her grandkids, she looked me in the eye and without hesitation, she said, oh, that's easy. Never let them doubt your love for them. In that moment, I realized not only was that really good parenting advice, but that it had also been an amazing foundation for my upbringing. And ever since that day, I have done everything I can to put that advice into practice for my children in every way that I can. One of the ways that I do that is I just simply tell them, liberally and freely, how much I love them. The first thing I tell my kids every morning when they wake up and every night before they go to bed is I love you. I'm happy to be your daddy. And I'm happy that you're my son or my daughter. I cho chose to make that a habit early on in my parenting because I want the first thing that my kids hear when they get out of bed in the morning, before they've done anything good or bad, before they've made any mistakes or broken any toys or done anything to receive discipline from me or their mother, to be that I love them wholeheartedly, freely, and unconditionally. And I want the last thing my kids hear every night before they go to bed, no matter how many times I've had to discipline them, no matter how many mistakes they've made, no matter how many times they've argued with one another or fought or uh, gotten in trouble, I want them to know at the end of the day this one simple truth, that I love them wholeheartedly, freely, and unconditionally. You see, I want my children to know more than anything else that the context of our relationship is one of acceptance and delight. There's nothing they do and there's nothing that can be done to them that could ever change the way I feel towards them, that could ever make me turn my back on them. Such is the Father's attitude towards those who are His.
That means that if you belong to God this morning, you never have to doubt God's love for you. Nothing you do and nothing that happens to you could ever cause your Father in heaven to turn his back on you. Not your addiction, not your medical diagnosis, not your trauma, not even your deep habitual sin that you try so hard to hide and overcome. Neither circumstance nor sin can cause God to back away from you. There may be consequences for your sin. You may suffer for reasons that you just don't understand. But at the end of the day, the context of your relationship with God, his overall disposition, his, the animating center of who he is, is one of acceptance and delight. The very moments when you're afraid that God is going to move away from you are in fact the very moments when he actually moves towards you in grace. To say that another way, if you belong to God, he will never cancel you because he is gracious. With this as David's backdrop, he proceeds now to show us that God is also approachable. Look with me again at verses 6 through 10. David says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Notice the boldness with which David prays to God here. David opens himself up to God, bringing to God his deepest pain and his desperate need in the hopes that God is going to take him in and help him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't open myself up with that kind of vulnerability or candor to just anyone. I only open myself up with that kind of vulnerability and candor to somebody I truly believe is going to receive me when I let them into the places of my deepest, darkest pain and shame. And if you're like me, it takes a certain kind of person to make you feel like you can speak freely about your deepest pain and despair. Yet, when David prays here, he doesn't seem to feel the need to posture or pretend before God. He doesn't seem concerned in the least that God is going to abandon him or ignore his cry for help. He seems confident that the Lord is going to take him in and hear him. He comes to the Lord broken and needy and desperate. Did you know this morning that God welcomes you to come to him in that very same way? Of all people in the universe, God has every reason to back away from you. He sees your despair. He sees your troubles. He sees your sin. He sees what you've done and what you haven't done. And yet, in the moments of greatest weakness and vulnerability, he moves towards you. And he welcomes you to move towards him. Because he is approachable. 
We see that God is approachable all throughout Scripture, but one of the places we see that most particularly is in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see it in the way that he welcomes children and eats with sinners. We see it in the way that he associates with the weak and needy and weeps with compassion for the hurting and broken. We see it in the way that he lets the despised and the marginalized come to him when no one else does. We see God's approachability all over the life and ministry of Jesus. And one of the places in Christ's life that I think we see this particularly well is in the story of the sinful woman in Luke 7. Uh, As the story goes, Jesus is eating dinner with a group of highly religious people. As they're eating their meal, uh, a prostitute walks into that meal and starts weeping over Jesus' feet. She wipes his feet with her hair, and then she anoints him with maybe perhaps the very same ointment that she used to attract men. In that moment, she's coming before Jesus in complete vulnerability and weakness. I'm sure if you were there, you'd be able to feel the tension in the room rise. Everybody knows who this woman is. Everybody knows what this woman is like. Everybody knows what this woman has done. And as she's sitting there weeping and wiping Jesus' feet, you get the sense that they're getting uncomfortable. And they're perhaps uh, wondering to themselves, can't she just leave? Seeing this, the religious man angrily begins to scold Jesus under his breath. He thinks to himself, man, if this Jesus was really a religious teacher, there is no way that he would be associating with a woman like her. But to the religious man's surprise, Christ welcomes her. He forgives her and he cleanses her of all of her disgrace by taking that disgrace upon himself. See, in a room full of highly pretentious religious people, who are expecting him to turn this woman away, Jesus invites her in. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't scold. He doesn't turn her away in disgust. He welcomes her because he welcomes the unwelcomed. He invites the uninvited. He forgives the unforgivable. Or as Dane Ortland puts it, God is not trigger-happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Friends, God is approachable. And if God is approachable, then anyone can come to him, including you and me. He moved towards us by clothing himself in humanity and becoming grace incarnate. And he now invites us to move towards him in return. That means that your circumstances and your sins need not keep you from from drawing near to God because his gracious disposition is his open invitation. You can move towards him because he's already moved towards you in Christ. So are you here this morning feeling isolated and alone because health issues perhaps have kept you from community? Come to him. He welcomes you. 
Has relational turmoil or family drama left you feeling disheartened and discouraged? Come to him. He welcomes you. Has pornography left you feeling crushed by the weight of guilt and shame again? Come to him. He welcomes you. Has your conscience been beating you up over an ego that has strained yet another relationship? Come to him. He welcomes you. Whether it's suffering or sin that leaves you feeling dismayed, you can come to God because he welcomes you. And the good news this morning is not only that you can come to him when you sin, but also that you can come to him out of your sin. Throughout his life and ministry, whenever Jesus encountered somebody like the sinful woman and he healed them or forgave them, one of the things that he often said at the end of his conversation with them was, go and sin no more. Because an invitation to move towards him is an invitation to move away from sin. So hear him inviting you this morning when you lost your temper. And hear him also inviting you out of your temper. Hear him inviting you this morning when you relapse again. And hear him also inviting you out of your relapse. Hear him inviting you this morning when you've been manipulative and deceptive. And also hear him inviting you out of your manipulation and your deception. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your story, you can come to God because he is approachable. God is a gracious and approachable Savior. We've considered already what it means for him to be gracious And we've considered already what it means for him to be approachable. So let's consider now what it means for him to be Savior. In verse 10, David cries out to God. He says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. As Americans, we often have a hard time with language like this. Because either we don't want help, or we don't think we're going to get help. Our, our cultural narrative has taught us that we are to be independent, self-reliant, self-made, that we are to overcome all obstacles, beat all odds, be our own person, and pave our own way. And so we think, we don't need God's help, or we don't want it. Or, in a world of unspeakable tragedy and unrelenting pain, we think to ourselves, There's just no way we could ever get it. Yet for David, Israel's king, he's not afraid to gall God as helper. And the word he uses for helper here isn't like a personal assistant who helps you do your job a little bit more efficiently or who helps you, gives you a little boost to get you the rest of the way after you've done most of the work. The word he uses for helper here is referring to somebody who meets an urgent and desperate need for somebody who cannot meet that need on their own. Think firefighter running into a burning building to save somebody whose life is in danger or paramedic who rushes to the scene of an accident to spare the life of somebody who's near death. When David calls God his helper, he's calling on him to be his rescuer, his hero, and his savior. And what we see in the rest of this psalm is that that's exactly who God shows himself to be. 
Look at verses 1 through 3. David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And again, in verses 11 through 12, he says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. When David wrote this psalm, he did so not as somebody who theoretically thought that it was possible for God to save, but as one who had actually been saved. He knew God as Savior because he had experienced God's salvation. He could call on God as his helper because he had experienced God's help. That gal that I told you about earlier, the one from my small group, could not enjoy God's love for her because in her mind, God's actions contradicted his character. But that's not what we see here. In verses 4 through 10, we see God's heart. He's gracious and approachable. And in the rest of the psalm, we see God's heart in action. He hears. He helps. He saves. His actions do not contradict his heart. They express it. How do we know what God is like? Because he showed us. He showed us what he is like here in this psalm. He showed us what he is like in the life and ministry of Jesus. And he showed us what he is like in the gospel. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. His heart is so inclined towards us that he sent Jesus to suffer and die for sinners so that we could be saved. He went down into the pit in order to bring us up to life. He tasted death in order that we might live. He understood the mourning and sorrow that we might be clothed in gladness and rejoice. We know God's heart towards us because he sent Christ for us. This is what Psalm 30 does for us. It shows us what God is like. And when we look at Psalm 30, we see that he is a gracious and approachable Savior. So when your sin or your suffering leaves you questioning what God is like, when your circumstances have you beat down and discouraged, feeling like God has abandoned you or turned his back on you, look to Jesus and remember, in him you have a gracious and approachable Savior. He's not disappointed with you. He's not reluctant towards you. He's not begrudging towards you. He's gracious and approachable. So I invite you to come to him this morning. Come to him in your brokenness and in your burden. Come to him in your weakness and in your woundedness. Come to him in your discouragement and in your distress. He will take you in because he is a gracious and approachable Savior. And if you happen to come into this room this morning and you don't know God in that way, he wants you to. 
If you're here this morning and you walked in feeling dejected and alone because of your life circumstances or because of your sin, wondering if you're going to be met with grace, you can be in Jesus Christ. If you came in here this morning needing to draw near to God, but wondering if it is even possible to draw near to God, you can through the Lord Jesus Christ. He welcomes you in. So won't you turn to him in repentance and faith? In just a moment, we're going to take communion together. As we do, I want to invite you guys to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is as you come down that aisle and you receive that bread and that cup, I want you to see the elements that we're going to take together as a reminder, a visual representation of God's gracious disposition towards you. Christ's body was broken for you. Christ's blood was shed for you that you would know that God is gracious towards you. The second thing I want you to do this morning as we take of communion together is to see the elements, the bread and the cup, as God's gracious invitation to you to turn from your sin, to come to him in your despair, and to move towards the one who has already moved towards you in Christ. As we take communion and after, we're also going to sing songs. As we sing, let's take the words of the psalmist to heart. Let's sing to God with all our glory, giving him praise and not being silent. Let's come before him and praise his holy name because of who he is for us in Christ. Let's praise him with all we are because of all he is. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that many of us have faulty misconceptions about who you are. Our life story, our experiences, our relationships have taught us to see you in a particular way. And for many of us, the way we've been taught to see you is inaccurate. Well, this morning we've opened up your word and we've seen what you're really like. You've shown us your grace. You've invited us to draw near to you. And you've reminded us that you are a savior. I pray this morning as we come to your table that we would be reminded of your gracious disposition that in Christ you accept and delight in us. And I pray this morning as we come to your table that we would hear your invitation to draw near in repentance and faith. Would you meet us now as we take of communion and as we sing your praise? In Jesus' name, amen.